This is Isaac. It's June 11th, uh, and this is a session to discuss the fourth chapter of Ruth. I use he, him pronouns. This is Donna. I use she, her pronouns. Mi nombre es Maria Chavalan. My name is Maria Chavalan. The fourth chapter begins with, sort of begins in process immediately after the events we just heard in three. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So there's an urgency here that's conveyed by the text. <laughs> in this translation that I have, it says, so Boaz said, come over here, friend, sit down. <laughs> there's just something very like parochial about that that's making me laugh. What does your translation say, Donna? Um, it uses that Poloni, Almoni, that weird, like um, Joe, Joe Schmo. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So they gather, Boaz gathers a group of witnesses to discuss the rights of redemption for the land of Elimelech. At first, he mentions, like when he tells this person who's closer and kin to Naomi than him about the opportunity to redeem Elimelech's land and provide for Naomi, the man is interested. But then when Boaz also says that, when you do this, you take responsibility for continuing the name of Malon and his line through Ruth the Moabite. That language is back again. The guy says, oh, if I do that, like, basically, I won't benefit from the redemption of this land myself. I'll have to give it to whatever child we produce. So I'm not interested in, in being the redeemer. And then they, uh, the guy uh, gives away his right to redemption by taking off his sandal and giving it to Boaz. And then there's this really, um, this like this speech by Boaz that I find has some really moving language in it. Then Boaz, this is in verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. This is a reminder of what's, it, what's been at stake. We mentioned this a little bit in the discussion of chapter three, but that language, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred, and from the gate of his native place is bringing up things that we talked about in the past about the importance of place, the importance of memory, and how you know those things are not something that we engage with as much in our culture, but are very powerful motivators and factors here. Donna, what does your translation say in in Boaz's speech? In that, how does Ellen Davis translate that in in order that the name of the dead peace? It's a uh, the middle of verse 10. Yeah, it says that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kin and from the gate of his home place. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, when you say that we don't engage with that notion of memory being attached to um, specific places, I think, you know, in white supremacy can't allow that, right? Because then it would have to acknowledge 
the violence of colonialism. You know, white supremacy requires that we forget um, the names attached to a place. And through the project of settler colonialism, it replaces the memory and the names of the places that it conquers Mm. in order to rewrite, you know, who these places belong to and who was originally there. You know, there's a practice amongst uh, people in the movement who include decolonialism or anti-colonialism in their theory and practice to refer to the places where they are by the name of the of the original peoples if they don't know what that name is they will for instance call it um you know like we are in so-called charlottesville virginia Hmm. you know to acknowledge that this is the name that's been imposed by the colonizers i completely agree with what you said about the way that um settler colonialism needs to cut off the history and the names of those who have inhabited that land. And, but I want to change one thing that I said as far as memory, because, you know, white supremacy does try to create new sort of totems and idols of memory. And they're present in the statues all over this country of, (laughs) and all over our town (laughs) of uh, Confederate generals of Christopher Columbus of, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, those, those are the supposed to be the new people. And the, the craziest thing is how we credit them with white people credit them with the, with discovery, you know, like I remember going to Colorado for the first time and visiting Pike's peak. And it was like, whoever, I can't remember his first name, but whoever the Pike guy was discovered this mountain (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, before that, no one had ever, like, it tries to give you this notion that before Westward expansion, literally no one had ever set foot there. And so it, it's, it's almost like it's uh, covering over indigenous history. But then it's also, you know, the narrative around colonialism and is uh, adventure. It's, you know, mastery of the world. It's like the advent of this technology that helped white people go out and discover new stuff. It's like this, um, you know, and that plays into sort of the notion of manifest destiny that that white people have been um, given this inheritance that the world is theirs to dominate. So it, it, mm-hmm. it becomes this like hero myth on top of everything else to, and of course, never without ever mentioning all of the blood that was spilled in that process. Yeah. Pero pienso yo, but I think mm, eso de que um, la costumbre de heredar this um, thing about the custom of of, of inherit in, inheriting the name of your family that's existed and people always think about their family to keep the family together they first take into account the closest kin so they may continue like let's say to, to make sure that someone from the family continues living in a certain land and that's that's part of the indigenous custom. First they ask uh, someone who's kin, so do not leave the land to a stranger. 
because then if you allow a stranger, you're allowing a stranger to come into your family. You don't know how each person's going to behave. You don't know who you're leaving behind your land to. But generally, it's not sold. It's just, they're just left behind. And they use a lot of sort of, they, they use this custom not of taking off your sandals necessarily. Oh, yeah, they have these like formal conversations, like in the way that Bo, Bo, Boaz said, you know, come here and sit down. Mm-hmm. He already knew if if the person took the seat to sit down, that, that's taken to mean that it's going to be a private conversation. They use certain terms that, you know, are understood for that moment. One example of this is my sisters tell me because since I wasn't, I didn't, I was sort of raised all over the place. I wasn't really raised in my village. When, whenever they someone would try to court um, a woman, they take the and they take the elders and the, and the elders listen to her speak about matrimony because they need to see if the the man is able to to speak about matrimony correctly. The way they ask, they won't say. They want to make sure that they 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 they've met each other, that they know the family. They talk, they take a look at the fingers because they they think of the fingers as a way to. To see like your children, and if it's a grandchild, they'll say it's like an, they'll speak of the grandchild as an ear. So it's, it's a lot of terms to speak of other things. So if they come to your home and they start talking like that, you'll say, "Well, they're they're basically asking for my my daughter's hand." And if you know you take that information and you give them permission to go inside your house, and if not, will they say that that maybe that is now is not the time? They cut off sort of the path to that event. If if people are want to meet that end, they'll they'll think, oh well, where did I fail? We have to find an expert guide. So they'll come go and look out for a guide, and maybe more family members that are older, and they'll talk through like maybe let's bring this thing, and maybe that'll convince the person to try to convince them that the daughter will be fine. They'll use events like that. If he asks them to sit down, sit down, that's taken to mean that they're about to talk something important. Mm-hmm. So Maria, the next section beginning in verse 11, after Boaz's speech, is that the elders who are there, you know, they respond to this news by saying a blessing on Ruth and, and Boaz. Is that... Uh, is there a similar practice in your culture, like what, after a wedding or before one, where elders would come together and and bless the new couple? Hmm. Mucha. A lot, hmm. yes. Es una ceremonia única. We, it's a very unique ceremony. It's taken seriously because because it's before the the both families. Because from the start, it's a long long path to commitment. Last time I saw one of my uh, nephews, they're uh, they're young, they are sixteen. Oh, but she, the niece, um, that she was pregnant, but the the law in Guatemala had already changed to to sort of prohibit the marriage of of people under eighteen. So the elders got together and they said that life must continue. They said life must continue regardless. That they, they see it from the point of view of if they love each other. They will they'll respect that, and if in any ca- in a given case, sometimes people might marry because of because someone might want their their daughter want want their daughter married, and and out of that interest, it happens. And that's why the the family will gather a council. So whether it's 
whether it's um, because of arrangements or because of love, then and they'll seek the the sort of blessings from the elders for the mm -hmm. couple. El último, por eso se hace como depende lo que diga. That's why they do it, you know, depending on on what the mother says or the father says. They have sort of the power in that moment. They they can say sort of set the rules um, in order to get to the matrimony and how the how the ceremony is to happen. So in the Kiche region, they'll ask for a lot of food to feed a large family that day. And aside from that, they're supposed to they're supposed to bring a basket with lots of money. <laughs> so if someone fixes their eyes on a Kiche woman, because they'll say, you know, because it costs so much for the mother to raise that her daughter, they'll start to talk about what the woman knows how to do, so she may not bring shame to the family where she was born from, and they hope they they hope that the the son from the other family doesn't bring shame on the other family. So you know, on the on the last day, they'll talk about how many errands are to be done. They'll ask, yeah, they'll do th sort of three engagement ceremonies leading up to the actual matrimony. So they'll say, well, they'll do the first um, engagement ceremony and it's just the closest family, will, they'll say, you know, I'm the father of the, of the youth. And they'll say, you know, if, if, they don't, if the young lady doesn't have a father, they'll look for the oldest in the family, he, the person who is sort of the father figure. And they'll say, well, let's do three ceremonies before the wedding three more for the um, women's family. And in that way, they'll also say, like, they'll, to put um, pressure on the future of the um, woman's life in, in order to not make it too easy to give away the, the young woman to the family. So they may remember that they, that they don't uh, forget to love the woman, that they may take care of her, they shall not abuse her they sort of uh, secure a future for her. In, in the day of the wedding, the, the more, more invitees of uh, the rest of the family are, are brought in and they make a huge party. But the married woman then is, is, is the one that goes through a lot of steps. Two whole days. I saw my, my niece. She, ha she, has to, she has to come forward to every, every single person Uh, whether it's on the woman's family or the other man's family, they'll sort of uh, close up in a room the the couple in a room like this. Only the old the adults can come from both families. So that time I went, and you sit on a corner, and they have to kneel before you, before every member of the family. It doesn't matter if the couple, let's say me. It doesn't matter if, if the couple is young. Uh, you say, you know, this, per this person is, is uh, married, so, you know, it's like a new encounter. Because soon they shall have, they, soon they shall have children and they have, must continue that process. And it's, and it's very tiring, but it's a very important step. So that's the day you get to meet the whole family of your husband, and the husband meets the woman's uh, family. And they change names. They they shouldn't mention their old names anymore. The, they're all respected, and the whole family becomes aunties and uncles. All the knowledge, the way that the man has been raised. If they say mom, 
or maybe another name they may call the mother. Because in, in the indigenous culture, they'll say mama is in Spanish. And in the indigenous cultures, we say mam, none. Which is sort of used as a way as a way of referring to an elder with more respect. And that same word can be used for any person in the street, in the market. So is you're you're supposed to use uh, the same respect that you use for your mom for all elders. And that day your your life changes completely. You must say, like the man said, that he has to treat everybody like their, like his mom. And you, and you will have many uncles, many aunties, many cousins. And so you also present on both sides, the man and the woman, their life changes, right? Because you must come forward in front of everybody. And they're always supposed to sort of ask for apology. It's like you're letting them know that you're going to start a new life. You're going to open a new door. They believe a lot in things that one does. That because, you know, a, a kid, um, might, your kid might get sick because you like disrespected someone in that ceremony. What they say is that they will ask for apology for things like that. To everybody, you must ask for apology for any wrong that you might have done to them. And, and they'll put their hand, they'll say, you, you'll put your, the, the person being talked to will put their hand on the, let's say the man's head. And they'll say, and they'll say, you know, may God forgive you for everything you've done before then, before this point, and that you are welcome to the family. So, so you'll have the full support of the family. And, and in that way, it's uh, two whole days of meetings. After having done that, that's what they say, well, everything's fine. Now turn in all the things that we gave you. <laughs> It can be like maybe 20 baskets of food, 25, and also the, all the errands that they ask that has to be done on top of that. They bring, they give the, the woman away, but in that sense, it also helps. Any problem that the couple might have, they'll try to work it out. That's where they'll remind you, you know, remember. Remember your failures and the advice that, that we gave you. And so it has a lot of, it brings a lot of weight on them. Same for the women and the men, to, to speak carefully in order to not upset the elders because they're not toys. So they fix up a lot of, they, 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 they fix up a lot of conflicts that way, you know, so we don't, we don't have police. Se usa poco, no se usa, es raro buscar un juez. It's rare to bring things before a judge. And it's rare to take things to court because the small conflicts are usually resolved and we just resolve them. Sometimes the w women might have a, a, a problem with their partner. They'll go back to their mother and the mother has the power to say, if the daughter came alone, the, the, the man is not allowed to cross the door and the, and the men know to not cross the door. They, they, they're, it's on them to persuade the mother, and the and the woman will also be like, "Why did you come?" And the the woman stays inside. She doesn't have a reason to go talk to him, because it's not a game what they're trying to resolve. And they'll call the parents of, or the the man the man also has to try to persuade his own parents, and they're supposed to come and apologize on his behalf. <laughs> 
then they commit so that they, that he will do the best for the young woman's life. And yes, there's so there's a lot of respect. So maybe a, a, a year, you know, years later, if the police come through, it's just to come through. We don't need the police, and the police know that they have nothing to do. They don't come. They don't really come through. And the 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 town's judge, who's installed by the state, he only takes care of things like drunk people. He, he barely has a job, but all those things are are important. Yeah. What does he? What does a judge? do with the drunk people? What kind of decision do they make? The drunk people? So since they're drunk, sometimes they'll get in fights. So they'll put them in jail. And, and somebody has to go bail them out. That's sort of the judge's job. But, but you're saying that it's rare that the judges get involved? Or that people go to the judge? Sí, para la familia. Yeah, when it comes to family matters, it's very rare. It, it, they sort of uh, work on things that happen sort of on the streets. It's better to sort of avoid problems and to not let them be, become big problems. And when it comes to land, oh, okay, say if you were to, if, if Isaac were to have a daughter, he, he's, he has Isaiah. <laughs> well, they worry more about the sun, so they'll leave the land to the sun. Because the the material responsibilities are the man's. And the woman is responsible for the home. It, it doesn't seem to be so important to leave inheritance for the woman. And so they leave it to the man to fight for the material things. It's on the mom to educate the children, the woman to educate the children. Mm-hmm. I, you know, um, Maria, um, there's an event here uh, in Charlottesville on Saturday that is a part of um, a long-standing movement that mm-hmm. that seeks to defund and then eventually abolish the police. But in American culture, we have been indoctrinated to believe that we require the constant presence of the police in order to manage conflicts and and supposedly to keep us safe, despite the fact that there are so many instances of the police inflicting violence in communities. So there have been a lot of people who want to make sure that people understand that, that the police are inherently violent and that we need to remove them from our communities and do exactly what you're saying happens in your culture, where conflicts are handled within the community, within families, within neighborhoods, so that we don't rely on these outside um, state-sanctioned forces who, who often bring violence in response to conflict. And, and so many people in response to these campaigns to defund and then abolish the police are bewildered to think, well, how will we stay safe? How will we um, resolve our conflicts 
if we don't call the police. And, you know, and, and, and those of us who believe in this campaign and this movement to, to end policing are, are trying to engage people in conversations that there are places in this world where those practices are in place already. And so it's really good for me. And I think whoever hears this conversation through this podcast to have you say that you come from a culture where the police are not relied upon to deal with conflict, especially because one of the concerns that arises here from people confused about what we would do without police is that there, there, there would be no way to respond to domestic violence as you were describing, you know, conflict between spouses or partners. And, and so it's, it's good for us to hear from you that your culture has a practice of how to resolve those interpersonal um, conflicts between married people, between people living, you know, together in a home that doesn't require them to get the police involved. So thank you for sharing that with us. It's a, it's a, it, it relates very much to questions that we are struggling with in, in this community right now. Sí, pues um, la, la policía yeah, well, the, the police está más en la ciudad de Guatemala. They, they are more in the city, the Guatemala city. But also in the towns, there's another sort of custom that they have. Since the family is, is, is sort of internally organized within the homes, and sort of organized by um, respect um, based on the age in the, within the family. We don't really care about height. I have a brother who's taller than me, but he knows that I'm the older one. So he respects me more. If he'll ask me, well, what do you think? What about this or that? He, he, has, he analyzes. He, he asked me about advice on his woman. So, you know, first is your family. And if a conflict's not resolved through the family, then, then in the community, there are other groups. And from then on, and from then on, from beyond that, they go through the village then, where the judge is. There's just one judge for the whole village, big or small. But people don't usually want to get to that point. It's then you then you are risking losing the person who's people who that you don't know. People don't usually get to the level of conflict within the community, and then they go back to their homes. And there's another group that's the elder council. It, other towns sort of take care of that, have that. Well, the, they'll bring up the question like, "What did? Why did this happen?" And they use, "Entiendo que eso." Okay, they'll use a like a sort of restorative justice model. Like if someone had like armed, ended up with uh, like using a weapon, for example, they'll take that into account to restore what the harm that was done. They'll ask for um, ap apologies. They'll, they'll, they'll sort of establish, you know, this is it. This is your last chance. Let's, let's restart now. 
because you know it, it really pains their hearts very heavy very hard but people agree that it must be let go so okay so uh, you know that when the state came for example after the civil war they tried to establish peace through through exchange of money between the guerrillas and the um, the military and so they people agreed we must bury what is no longer necessary can i care we, we people agreed that we must not repeat this like for example the way that people are taking down the columbus statue people are saying we must not repeat this people are learning that that we we learn from these mistakes and 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 so that's good they're saying let's not put up statues like these anymore and they used to say things like oh how in the bible they talk about spitting up towards the heavens that if you spit towards the heaven the spit will come back to you <laughs> you don't do that yeah el único que sí regresa sus palabras o, o no cumple lo que dice. So if somebody, you know, uh, doesn't uh, live up to their word, it, there's the, that's the dog. Because the dog will chew, will, will vomit, and then they will eat their vomit again. And the human beings must not be like that. What they, what they throw out, they must be left behind. Let's not be like that. So people are just always have to be willing to forgive. Because they were wrong, they must forgive. So that's what people do, and that's that's what that's what they refer, you know, like restorative justice for harm. People told me about a case one day, like a, a man stole a chicken. They, they they had a meeting at the school. They used the school as a as a meeting point. They don't judge the person before listening to their reasoning. They'll ask them, "Why did you hit that person? Why did you steal? What is your need?" And the man said, he said, my, my, my wife is sick and he, I was getting desperate and I couldn't feed my family. So he found this chicken in the mountain because over there in the towns, you don't fence the animals. The chickens and the rabbits will go, go up the mountains and they'll come back in the evening to their owners. Oh, he, 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 he grabbed that chicken, but you know, the, the, there's no wild chicken. So it, that chicken had an owner. And when he got to the, the house, he tied up the chicken by a leg and the chicken laid an egg. So, um, you know, on top of the, the chicken laying an egg, he, he, felt, he felt like he couldn't kill it because he wanted it to have more eggs. And another person noticed that he had this chicken tied up. And, and from there, you know, the only thing he got around to doing was eating the chicken's egg. They asked him why. He said, you know, I was very hungry. My family is very hungry. So they talked it out between them and, and, and um, you know, agreed that he did it out of need, that he shouldn't need to have to steal again. So they, they, they talked to the family that owned the chicken. Is there something that can be done so that you all feel happy? They, like, asked the opinion, like, how do you want things to be resolved? They, they said, the, the man, we want the man to feel supported, but we want there to be some punishment for the um, damage done. They asked that he go help out at, the, at their land for two days, do some field work without pay and for free, and to bring back the chicken. And since the chicken was alive still, he did bring it back. So nobody hit him. And, and the council sort of oversaw to make sure that it was done. The, the elders would come by to make sure the man was working. And when they got there, the man was eating lunch. They, they, when they went to the other family's land, they saw the man was eating and they talked to the family. like, why are you feeding him? And they said, well, he's a good worker. 
And so he did the two days, and that was the end of that. They established this example for others, and that's why they do it in public. That is not good to steal. You don't have to steal. It's it's better it's better to sort of to bring up any needs you have with the community or other elders. But then the police are not involved in any of this. So with that system, nobody steals. Everything everybody everything has an owner. And they also remind them of the dog that you must not, you know that you must not steal again because you gave your word that you're not going to steal again. And if it came to the point where the man didn't do what he said he was going to do, they're going to ask for your apology. Then they might involve the police. Like the, 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 it's usually in cases of violence, they don't listen to any reasoning. Like the police don't, won't listen to your reasoning. They'll sort of turn you over. So, you know, people don't usually have a reason to get to that point because people see that they have a gun in their hands and that these men with the guns, they, they feel powerful. Because if they didn't have a gun in their hands, everyone who has a gun feels powerful because of the weapon. So it's like having a cop there with a gun is like a danger in and of itself. So that's why the indigenous people, people try not to endanger people in that way by involving the police because it's easy for the police to pull a gun on them. They try not to have something so dangerous near your family. Because the first person to suffer when ha having a weapon in their home, you know, like having a gun in, in your in your what house, you know, can endanger the kids because the kids might grab your gun. Mm -hmm. Entonces, tu familia lo pones primero en peligro y luego you're a endangering tus your family first, and then you're endangering your neighbors next. Y si te, y si te un poco, and if you get kind of angry, en tu pistola, right away you start thinking about your gun, and you think of yourself as strong with your gun. And you can really kill people. So you start scaring those around you. So I don't get why all these people want to scare everybody around them. So anyways, that's why we don't trust in the police nor the military. Thank you, Maria. Mm -hmm. um, just in the interest of time, I want to pull this back to the last nine verses of the fourth chapter, but that was a pretty good primer on uh, <laughs> community defense and, mm -hmm. and restorative justice. Mm -hmm. So we talked about this in the third chapter a little bit, but after this litany of blessing from the elders, Boaz and Ruth conceive a child. And, you know, it really, the author names God as present in that conception. Ruth bears a son. And then the women in the community give another blessing to Naomi. And again, it's it's really a moving text because it says that they say, this child shall be a restorer of life and nourish you in your old age. And the reason that they say that, they, they go on in verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. Uh, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, which is interesting that, that like the community names him. But, you know, here it gets back to this notion that the relationship, the bond between Naomi and Ruth is so powerful that... Ruth and Boaz's child is 
going to reflect that through his relationship with Naomi and the restoration of of her pain, but also like the care that she needs. Um, it just you know that that first the first place that desire appears in this text is Ruth's desire to stay with Naomi, and this is sort of the fulfillment of that. And you, you know this. We hear this incredible line that Ruth has been uh, is more to Naomi than if she had had seven sons with Elimelech. Does your translation translate Obed? Donna's reading Ellen Davis's translation. Mm-hmm. No, it just then gives the the genealogy. Mm-hmm. So, like I said earlier, I I broke my rule last night. I'm no. sorry. The sorry, the footnote does say it means one who serves God. Uh, so, like I said earlier, I I broke broke my rule last night and and looked at some commentaries, and it and I think it's important in this fourth chapter to name a reality about um, the historical setting in which Ruth was written. You know, biblical scholars' best guess is that it's written in this post-exilic period where the people of Judah have returned from exile after being conquered by another people. And there are two other texts in the Christian Old Testament that also come from this period, Ezra and Nehemiah, that deal with the return from exile back to Jerusalem. If Ruth really is written at that same time, then the fact that it ends with this marriage too between Boaz and Ruth it's really incredible because those two texts end with are primarily concerned with the fact that the Israelites have been intermarrying with foreign people. And so the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah both end with this condemnation of mixed marriages and then the dissolution of those marriages and like the sending away of foreign wives and children. So in Nehemiah 13, (laughs) you know, it ends with this line, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. And in verse 23 of that, it says, in those days also, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, uh, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke the language of various peoples. And I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. You know, just the the idea that in this setting of intense sort of anxiety around purity and a restoration of Jerusalem and the people of Judah after this time of exile in a foreign land, that the text of Ruth would appear at also in that with the exact opposite message that 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 joining between people of different different peoples was addition, a new restoration of life and not a subtraction or a loss is really astonishing and it's an important and i mean and it's all like this author to even go as far as to say and all of this by the way 
is how we end up with King David is just in that setting is pretty powerful because I, so I think it's important to read this in with those other two texts kind of ringing in our ears. I have a question for Isaac, since you're the pastor. In those times, I don't know if it's in those times, but and if it's still thought of this way, the fact that Naomi, that Ruth stayed with her, so, so that they may continue the lineage, and then they were, and the fact they were hoping for this child to have a child that would bring something good for humanity. Maybe also, maybe also they had the support of well, of different knowledges. So in Mayan culture, when something when they're people are expecting for something to happen, you have to put it, bring it to the divine planes. That you ask that you ask time itself. It's like laying out your um, your your thoughts in within the spiritual levels, and, and you ask yourself, you know, will this what what end will this path bring us? It seems that that these elders were sort of asking themselves that in that time. And maybe they still practice that today too. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh... They're definitely seeing the work of God and the creation of this new family. And I think that, um, you know, some people claim that when they read this text, that Ruth sort of no longer exists in the culture as a Moabite after this. Like, you know, like she becomes a convert to Judaism and just is treated like a Jew after that. I think that that context or that sort of argument is kind of undone by the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like that, you know, just the notion that that, that Ruth's status, that Ruth's identity as a Moabite would no longer matter now that she was married to a Jewish man. I just don't think that makes sense. So I don't think that it's right to say that, oh, she abandons all of what she learned and then moves into this new space as much as the sort of line between those people is redrawn around them both. You know, Ruth remains a Moabite and it's not about like, you know, her being absorbed as much as, you know, this family continuing with through the addition of, you know, this person from a different people. Donna, any thoughts working through your head right now? I'm so preoccupied by uh, Maria's story about conflict resolution in her community. So processing it. But also my question is like, you know, for example, Donna comes from a different culture. Do, do you all, do you all have that knowledge in your culture? Like having communication with the divine realms? Like asking the divine for answers to your questions? You know, uh, I've been assimilated into American culture because, you know, I was, I've been raised here since I was uh, about six years old, five or six. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, what I know of um, 
you know, how my people, um, you know, behave in that way is very little, you know? Um, I mean, I think, you know, if they, if they do that kind of thing that you're asking about, it's out of what we have learned through Catholicism. To my understanding, most people in the Philippines don't have a connection to the practices of indigenous spirituality, except that there are still indigenous peoples who haven't been as touched by, you know, the, the, the arms of colonialism um, on the islands because they're so remote. And so they're still able to practice as they always have for thousands of years. But, but they're, you know, it's that it's not as prevalent. You know, we, we have um, the, the Philippines is made up of over a thousand islands. And, you know, the, most of those islands are inhabited. But some of those islands are so difficult to get to from the main islands that sometimes those people are able to continue living as they always have. You know, and there, there's um, a lot of movement in the People's Revolution that has been going on there for over 50 years now to protect those communities so that they can continue. Because many of those communities, those indigenous communities, um, live on land that has um, resources that the state wants access to. And it's important to understand that the, the Philippine government, the Philippine state, is very much controlled by the United States, even though we supposedly were granted independence in 1954. The presence of the U.S. is still heavy in the Philippines. There's hundreds of U.S. military troops throughout the islands protecting multinational corporations who are stealing our resources. And many of those from indigenous communities who don't have enough, you don't have the ability to um, defend themselves from, you know, such a large world power. Um, you know, it's the, the military of the United States is, has devastating power and, but they're still fighting. They still fight. And, you know, much of that resistance is accompanied by an armed component. So there's a lot of violence in a lot of those um, communities, but it's, it's violence that's brought on by the state in relation to the support that it receives from the United States who, who wants to control um, the resources of our country as well as, you know, control the Philippines as a strategic military um, position in relation to Korea and China. Yeah. Mm. Pues, um, en la, 
no estamos tan lejos, o sea, I Guatemala no está tan lejos de Co Estados Unidos. I, I feel good about coming here, you know, we're not too far. Uh -huh. US is not very far from Guatemala. Pero So I'm very grateful to God because because we have a lot of communication with the creator. So yeah, we we've maintained we've kept separate we've kept separate the indigenous culture from the mestizo culture or the white culture. So that's why I was asking because I was because in in these times that we're talking about Ruth, it seems that 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 the elders have this this knowledge of how to communicate. You know, because since we're born, we feel this divine power. We we don't really talk about it. We just feel it. So if anything happens, you know, you ask God, and it seems that He gives you signs. So that's when when the indigenous travel. They ask in the moment. They ask if they ask God if it's the right thing. And and to, and ask him to clear the path. And if there are any dangers in the way, ask him what to do. The, in, in in the indigenous regions, there's no um, state government really. The indigenous have a separate system from the city, and that's good for us because we maintain our culture. Maybe materially, we don't have the same things. Pero mm, Dios nos mandó sin nada, sin ropa, sin But sin terreno. God blesses us. Whether if we don't have clothes, if we don't have land, we know that the important thing is to keep our lives and to love everyone as if they were your sibling. And you know, we believe in in this man Jesus who died on the cross for us, who was truly the best man to be born, and we follow his teachings. So every time we call each other you know we we can we sometimes call our, our elders through phone for advice when you're not feeling good let's say you know ice let's say ice is trying to catch me but you, we all I, we always pray um, for the heaven to come down in the place of jesus he brought great change in humanity and even then he they treated him wrong But we're still siblings, we're still brothers and sisters. <laughs> Aunque no nos quieran. Even if we're not wanted. <laughs> así, así es como están. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I think, um, you know, um, the especially the southern region of the Philippines. Maria, I'm going to show you um, the Philippines on the map. And um, so do you see that it's, very spread out it's an it's an archipelago many many islands mm. make up my country and the the southern region um is very close to um what is now indonesia and malaysia and so many mm. of the indigenous communities there through trade and other interactions you know pre-colonial times, they became Muslim. So many, the, the majority of people in um, the Philippines, especially further north of that southern region, the, in the central and northern regions are, are Catholic or some other Christian religion. And, but the, most of the people in the south are, are Muslim. But they have their own spirituality too, I think that Again, I don't know enough about it because I, I I don't have a lot of exposure to these communities. And I imagine there's some mixing of their in their ancient, you know, uh, 
spiritual practices and then what what they gleaned from um, uh, Muslim people. Sí, la, la cultura indígena también. Indigenous culture. No, too. no se, se procura no, no mezclarse. They make sure to try to not mix because they believe that the um, the wisdoms, the, the, the Western um, wisdoms, because the th what they have learned, what they have been taught. Most people, you know, they don't go to school. They don't really know about genes, but we're, really we're talking here about genes. So people just speak of it as like um, not mixing blood because, you know, like deep inside their blood and deep inside their DNA, they have the scars of the violence. So that's why they try not to mix because maybe that this thing happened 50 years ago, but they'll still carry it in their blood. That's why they don't mix the culture unless they want to um, maybe raise an angry man who, who won't have, who won't feel that, that inside them when they pull out their gun. Because it might awaken that, that deep anger. So, you know, they've had many years with their weapons. God willing, they can calm their fury. So I think that as we kind of wrap things up, I would just ask what are some reflections you all had about talking about this book and all these other things for the last eight or 10 hours or over four or five sessions? What you know, what are you going to take away from this? What surprised you? Things like that. Pues, um, en este hablamos de... So here we talked about... Específicamente de uh, Noemi. We talked about Naomi and Ruth. We, we touched on that topic because of, you know, today, immigration today. So we noticed that she migrated and later came back to her homeland. We have to keep in mind, we have to keep in mind that we're never fixed to one place, because you know there's a reason why we're we're doing good here, and if a meteor were to come, we we must <laughs> we must go to some other place. Again. <laughs> so let's not think of ourselves as the sole owners of any one piece of land. We must just learn how to take care of it, love it, and and make it make it better. Just like you're doing, you're taking good care of me. We're not fighting each other. Maybe. And tomorrow, you know, only God knows where we will be. Because it could be because of a job, for visiting a distant family member. We must consider, we must consider all of planet Earth. When we see Naomi, you know, when she was in with her family, she was happy. She had, you know, the daughters-in-law. She was expecting grandchildren. They were not born in that place. The, the sons died. So let's not, let's not think of ourselves as owners of any particular place because only God knows if we're still here tomorrow. So it's not really worth it fighting. To just always fight. So like, look at Naomi. She had to go to another place, come back. Sort of start from zero, but she also found a solution, and the divine intervened in that because God had a plan for the continuance of the lineage. That's what we see. So let's not trust. Let's not think of ourselves as owners of this land. God is the only owner. So it could be that the military comes, the police comes with their weapons, 
wanting to, you know, forcefully disperse us, they don't have that power either. They were only the creators of the weapons, but they don't have the actual power. And, you know, they're not happy in their homes either. For example, the man who killed George Floyd for not, you know, being calm enough, the anger took over him. Where was it? Where is he now? You know, he's way less happy than he was before then. Let's, you know, let's notice that we're not owners of even an instant moment, nor the land where we are. So, you know, let's always seek guidance and wisdom from God. Él sabrá He'll know how to guide us. With, you know, like today, mother, tomorrow's another day. That's how our life is. Mm-hmm. Donna, what about you? What are you, uh, what stood out to you over the last, over the life of this discussion? I think I can um, see the roots of the sort of motivations or arguments that, you know, I've, I, I have heard from, you know, white Christian people <laughs> in this country in response to immigration. And, I, and I'm speaking particularly of, you know, white Christian people who are supposedly pro-immigration. <laughs> and, you know, in this discussion, especially how you and Blair explained, you know, the, the, you know, the, the way that white Christians have, or, you know, have sort of um, interpreted uh, this story to, to see themselves as, you know, the protagonist. And, you know, it, it really explains a lot to me about um, some of the conflicts that I've had in the, you know, pro-immigrant community, the people who haven't experienced immigration and haven't um, had the experiences that people like Maria and I have had in this country. And secondly, I think, you know, I just want to mention uh, the conversation that uh, you and I had after the first session, you know, not during the recording, but afterward, you know, that you had invited me into this conversation and I was actually eager to be a part of it. And not because I have any particular interest in doing a close reading of any of the books of the Bible, but, you know, again, because all of us sitting in this room together, even, you know, Blair and Maritza, who are not being recorded with us, you know, we're a community of people who've come together around this issue of immigration. Um, particularly for the sake of Maria in her fight for asylum. And, you know, my interest is in the relationships we have with each other and that this, this conversation is important to you. And, and in part, not because, you know, you are a pastor in, in this particular religion, but because you have also built a relationship with us and you want to have this conversation with us as a part of, you know, how we build our relationships with each other. And, and I, and I think that it's important for us to, to continue these practices of um, building out our personal relationships with each other, to have the conversations with each other. And they can, they can come out of this particular thing, like this close reading of this particular book or out of other um, conversations that might be of more interest to to me or to Maria, 
but that, you know, we ended up having all of these other conversations of the places where each of us comes from, the the moment we find ourselves in right now. And um, and so so th- that's what was important to me out of out of um, participating in this recording. I feel like I know Maria better and that, you know, I wouldn't have heard some of the things from her had we not been invited into this conversation, you know, and, and for me, she was really bringing alive the, what I guess to be the intentions that like the, the, the lessons that this author intended out of this book of Ruth. And, you know, and she, this conversation with her helped to bring those lessons alive. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, (laughs) it's so funny when you, and I had that conversation after that first session where you said a lot of what you just said, as you were talking about it, I was sitting there thinking, this is one of the best sort of like arguments for what's going on, ideally, when folks are reading the Bible together that I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the academy or in theology about like what's taking place when you're sitting down with other people and reading a text. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a question that's bigger than religion. It's a larger life question, but, you know, we've talked so much about the way that, you know, the relationship between reading and and action and, you know, what you've reflected on about how sitting down to enter into a close reading is a way of sort of exercising our relationships and growing them and like, building them through the sort of tension of discussion. And I think for people who are listening to this, you know, no matter what your background is or what your motivation is for listening to it, that's the reason and idea behind doing any practice that resembles what we've been doing over the last, you know, eight or 10 hours. And especially for Christians, I would say that this is why reading the Bible and community is so important. And especially in with people who are not like you. I mean, I think that, you know, we, for me as, as a pastor, as a person who thinks about theology, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Ruth is because, you know, I'm still trying to think through these questions of, like you said, supersessionist theology of white Christians reading themselves as in place of the Jewish people in these texts and what does it look like to try to challenge that and, and, and decenter that by reminding white folks what's always been true in this conversation, that they are outsiders to it, that this text, Ruth, doesn't belong to them, that none of the texts that come from Hebrew scripture were written for them. And what does it mean to try to wrestle with that in a real way for the first time because they've been taught this, you know, white supremacist theology that lies to them about that reality and says, this was written for you. And so I think that, you know, the, at the heart of this text is this question about kinship and does kinship mean, you know, the disappearance or does it mean joining and, and what do, you know, what is the world that we want to build around you know, struggles for freedom, like Maria's fight for asylum. What are the ways that we need to build communities that are going to help continue those things and help us fight for each other in ways that honor one another and create the memory that that we see powerfully working through this text and and that we see powerfully working through 
Maria's culture and, and, and through the personal relationships that we have around the table. But, you know, I, the, uh, what you're saying just now just makes me think that, um, you know, the, the, the tendency for white Christians to read themselves um, into uh, stories of, in the Bible that don't belong to them, it, it makes it make sense why, even though there was initially some resistance to inviting Maria into the church for sanctuary, you know, we were in a, you know, in a, in, in a relatively short amount of time able to um, overcome that resistance and, you know, and, and the decision was made to let her in. But, you know, yesterday we were talking about how there, despite the, the, this particular church taking on this idea of opening the church to someone from the outside, you know, there's there are still people questioning why Chris is here, <laughs> and why would that be? And I think because there there, I mean, I don't I don't know. You can you all can tell me, but there isn't a story in the Bible that allows white people to read themselves into the oppression of black people. Mm-hmm. And so they can't relate in a way that maybe they can relate to the story of a non-black immigrant person. You know, anyway, I just, that thought just came to me and I'd have to think about that a little bit more. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that part of the reality there is that black and white Christians are reading the same stories and yet white Christians don't understand that they're the ones doing the violence and not the ones suffering the violence. Right. <laughs> so even there, there's a sort of substitution, you know, um, the history of, of black Christianity coming forth from, you know, slaveholding Christianity. Yeah. It is a very complicated topic, but I, I think also that, you know, the rea- the other reality is, is that, most folks have been taught by the church to think about this place as like, as a like uh, social club with a nonprofit attached and not a place where people can come to help each other survive or to get free. And so I think that when, you know, buildings or property are used in ways that aren't for, that they're not used to being asked to use them, you know, yeah, it, it brings up questions that they aren't, familiar with asking. Um, and that means that they have to go through a process from the very beginning of doing all those things that, that we talked about doing and what these texts are supposed to help us do. Maria, it looks like you, we're going to give you the last thought here. Let's see. Pues, um, uh, antes de mi venida a esta iglesia. Coming to this church. Mm-hmm. Yo, no, no sabía, o sea, que tenía que protegerme en algún lado. I, I had to protect myself in some way. I told myself, I'm going to put this in the hands of God and God will guide me. And God will, will, will guide me to the correct path. So I had faith that God will do all the things that are good for one. And in this case, me. So I told myself, you know, I have many options. There were many decisions I could have taken. 
But I said, well, you know, God will guide me. He knows where where I will go. He will know how to, you know, guide me along the way. And there can be any being that guides me. It could be a dog. When I was crossing to the U.S., I felt like I was um, chasing a dog. Uh, well, I was said to myself, well, maybe God is using the, a dog. And when I got to this church, he, he confirmed for me. It's like he has said, Maria, here in this house, this house here, the color, the light, in the times when there were um, uh, trees and leaves in the trees, the university, the universidad, the side of the university, the people. In, in that moment, he said, you know, this is your place. Here you go. So God really guides you. So we're better off asking God. You know, in, in, in the end, we have to, you know, in, in the church, there's many, many different types of people. But in our homes, in the people's homes, we must always handle the truth. And, and it seems like we handle a lot of lies. That's why the children don't grow right. Because they keep telling them, oh, this person is of another color. That they don't have certain things. So, una generación que? Uh-huh. So, we're, we're, this is how we're teaching the coming generations. So, all of these knowledges that we have in, the, in our homes, it reflects in the society. So it's better to teach good, to find a good um, end, end to it. Yeah. Thank you, Donna and Maria, uh, for joining me in this conversation. And thank you so much to Luis and to Blair for making it possible. I hope that uh, if you're listening to this, that you've uh, gotten a lot out of it. Uh, because certainly a lot has gone into it. And I thank everybody here for that. Thanks for listening to the People's Commentary on the Book of Ruth. We'll be continuing our conversation with Maria and Donna every Sunday over the next few weeks. And I hope that you will recommend the show to others, subscribe, like, review, all of that stuff helps us get the word out about this work and helps us lift Maria's voice. Remember to check out the show notes for more info about Maria's story and how you can support her in her journey to safely live in the United States. And if you're looking for something a little more irreverent, the Magdalene Network also has a talk show called Until We Get Canceled featuring myself, Gary Serbaugh, and Brian Bliss. Um, Finally, if you want to help support the show, share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next Sunday for another episode on the Book of Ruth. Peace. Peace.